Welcome to the Once Upon a Leader in Africa podcast with George Nudu. We invite you to listen to influencers and opinion shapers narrating their experiences from their leadership roles in Africa, from the world of business, community development, government, corporate, social enterprise, among others. We will glean from their good, bad and ugly side of their leadership journey and be inspired to overcome adversity, to pursue success against all odds, to be a great leader and many other lessons. Welcome to the podcast and here's George Nudu. Hello Mary, how are you? I'm well, George, and you? I'm well and happy that uh, you are honoring me being a guest on this podcast. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very happy to be talking to you. All right, then. So tell us something about yourself, Mary. All right. So I am um, generally a leader in the HR space, in the governance space. But I am. I describe myself as a mother of two. I have a, I have two little ones, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And uh, I am, of course, in, in corporate leadership. Uh, I've been for now, I think, 18 years. And um, yeah, I really love what I do. I love, I love the, the brands that I've, I've worked with. I love the people that I've worked with. Uh, and I love the fact that uh, my work involves putting a lot of impact uh, in the world, you know, putting my footprints around the world. So that's that really is what uh, excites me. I love hosting when I'm not uh, working. I really enjoy a good a good laugh. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I'm 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 pretty. I am really really honored to consistently be allowed to steward a lot of resources. So that's really who I am. You talked about some of the brands that you have been engaged in the last eighteen years. Can you share with us some of where you have? Oh been? yeah. So I started out in the legal fields, uh, looking at 20-year-old files, which I couldn't believe had been in one law firm for 20 years. And I realized this is not the practice which I used to watch in the 80s. So I quickly detoured, uh, luckily uh, found uh, HR as, as a practice, went into the, into the steel industry first, uh, moved on to service industry, uh, my last posting was in the flower industry uh, for six years. And now I'm with one of the biggest brands in Kenya, one of the biggest, most influential brands in Kenya, uh, Naivas Limited. So these are just some of the brands I've been very, very privileged and honored to serve. Okay. Which law firm was that? It was called Gishigi Burugu Advocates. And by the way, the lead, the lead partner is still a very, very close friend of mine, him and his family. Yeah, actually, now that he reminded me, yes. And very, it, was, it was enjoyable, but ha, I realized, because I'd watched the practice a lot when I was growing up. So this was my aspiration. Yes. Then when I went, I found out the practice is not in Kenya, it's somewhere away. So that's how I quickly dropped that, uh, that thought and it moved swiftly but that was a beautiful time also it was a beautiful time of growth so it was it was good where can you say your leadership role started i could say especially when i went into the from the time i started my hr career 
I've had to actually lead from the beginning because uh, the situation that I found myself was such that uh, there wasn't anyone else in the field. And I think at that time, it was quite largely unexplored. You know, the new laws were being enacted in the country. There needed someone to um, implement those laws in the, in the HR space. So that actually needed someone who had some level of knowledge in law and also some level of knowledge in HR. So I found that at that point, there was a lot of, it wasn't explored. Also, I think it was the changeover from personnel to HR. So I think also there then meant that there was a lot of green or blue uh, in that regard. So for example, at the steel farm where I went, they had 1,500 employees. There was no HR person. So even at that young age, I found myself being the lead of the department. So after that, it was up and up. And, and I, I always say I properly Googled my way into the profession because every time I went to a senior person, I said, oh, this HR director of this company must be very knowledgeable. When I went to them, I found that there was a lot of secrecy in the HR field. You know, people don't want to say. So maybe maybe it is in line with the confidentiality requirements. You know, so if you'd say, please show me how our policy looks like, and they'll be like, yeah, we'll send it, but most probably not. So I'd Google myself away. You know, I practically learned everything I did. And I think that's what really did give me an edge because then I practically had to research my way into the profession and into understanding why, what is the reasoning behind. I didn't take it so lightly that you're supposed to hire using this format because for me, I had to understand the why for me to action it. So this, and I think this is the one thing I wish to give back, you know, and I'm, I, I, I'm constantly sharing everything I can because I don't believe that people who've gone before you should make it so difficult uh, for you. So, uh, and I think that's where I started. And I realized actually every time I did something else, I, I realized I was better than the people I found consistently. So I, I think that's where I started that, that opportunity. I had, I have really had amazing leaders. I have actually, I can say, uh, not cliche, but that I have grown on the leaders of all the giants that I've met ahead of me. Everyone's been very supportive, uh, given uh, numerous opportunities everywhere. You know, like the doors have really been held open mm-hmm. for me. Um, and, and I remember like at the steel plant where I stayed for about three years, the, the director there trusted me so much that I didn't understand what the issue was. You know, like how can he trust me? I'm Googling. If he asks me something, I go and Google it. I come back with an answer. But he, he actually trusted that, you know what, I have, I'm going to deliver it. Uh, also, I was very young, so I, I lived off hiding my age for a long time. I hid my age for long because I knew the moment I speak it, I have problem with authority. So, but, but I think, you know, I think when you, everyone wants to work around a person who has, who is excellent or who is putting their best. So even though they could have a bias, when they realize you're, you're their gateway to their success, I think they are more willing to take you on. So I, I'd say that is it. Then I've constantly been picked to the next role, you know, being pointed out to the next role, pointed. And everywhere I've found amazing bosses. And because in HR, a lot you work with directly with the MD, I found amazing managing directors. Actually, I've not, I wouldn't fault a single one of them. Each of them has grown me in such great ways. And, you know, it's it's always, always a pleasure, always a pleasure to work with my, my MDs. So I, I, I can say, I think just from getting into the practice, I was lucky in that way. Later on, I felt a lot, a little bit imposter-ish because I said, I never sat under anyone who mentored me. How could you mentor self? Um, but then I realized later on but that I could be mentored by other things. I could be mentored by books. I could be mentored by 
opportunities I interact with. Therefore, it shouldn't be that I didn't see because I didn't see. So it ha- I had to really coach myself out of that rea- uh, that requirement to be mentored by a human person. I said to myself, I'm glad that I've been mentored by books, I've been mentored by podcasts, I've been mentored by um, by people who you know have interacted on a day, even my own peers, you know. So I, I dropped that need to have been mentored, but I'm constantly asking myself, who's doing better? Who are they? What can I, how can I, what can I learn from them? What's documented? What can I learn from it? And the curiosity has not ended, you know, so I'm constantly curious about why. Um, why are they asking this? Why are they introducing this? So I, and I can see that's how it just, it's just been going, you know, I haven't, I've just gone in. I think I'm, I'm one of the very lucky people. So in this particular way, I'm very, very blessed, I must say. Going back to your childhood, school, and all that, were you engaged in leadership responsibilities and duties? Yes, I've always been a prefect, by the way. <laughs> I thought it's because I talk so much, eh? Yeah, but I'm also, I think even from a young age, a little bit more structured, a little bit more, you know, I am a, a bit guided. Yeah, so I think I've always been a leader in my, in, even with my, my age mates, you know, I'm into initiatives. I remember when we were growing up, I'm the one who would organize a group of us to visit someone or a group of us. to. So I've always had that. As I grew up, little, little, like I wouldn't say that I was like the master leader then, but I think in little ways I had this talent to bring things together and to put things together. Now, even that I'm speaking about it, I, I and I'm remembering the little, little organizations and things and that, you know, that uh, I used to do. So, yeah, I, I, I can say maybe that is where it is, although actually I'm the last child in my family. So I don't understand where it came from, but I don't know. But I think it's maybe just also watching my environment, the people around me and how they would organize. So maybe I also learned how to organize around me. So, yeah. And having known you for some time, you had leadership roles within and also outside the country. And yes. <laughs> just your, your leadership outside the country. I've, I've said many times that Australian uh, for me was where I really felt like I made an impact in the world uh, in many fronts. But one of the things that Australian really did is uh, it allowed me to practice my a governance skills. It's the first time I became a director in an organization, but also it's a, uh, because Australia was very uh, socially conscious, had sustainability and socially conscious. Uh, we were very, uh, we, we had a lot of responsibility to ethical standards. So one of those standards was the fair trade standard. And the fair trade standard has a very interesting model. So it's a standard which is subscribed by People who like-minded people, both consumers, farmers who produce, and also traders who trade this product, come into an agreement to say, look, we're going to give this mark to anyone who produces fairly, treats people well, uh, takes care of the planet, you know, is very proactive around just generally creating a sustainable environment. And if you produce like that, as a customer, I'm ready to pay you more, a shilling more as an investment to you as a person producing, because producing ethically is not cheap, all right? So putting your money where your mouth is, right? Saying, I want ethical, therefore, I need to actually pay for it, all right? And then there's a trader in between who then also appears to that practice because the, the consumer cannot come to the end product every time, all right? So the trader commits to be the person watching that everyone's doing their part and then remit this extra money to the producer. So... 
that, that organization also requires that the producer is empowered. And of course, I, I would sit on the side of the producer. And this is where they bring democracy, you know, bringing a lot more voice on the table so that then when decisions are being made about price, are being made about, about you know, what is ethical, because, you know, there could be what chemical will you use or not use, what is it, you know, when those decisions are being made, that the person affected by that decision should sit on the table. And that's how I found myself actually being the chair of Fair Trade, representing my organization in the East Africa region, all right? Uh, that, that was about six months. And then from that representation, I went to sit on the East African, into the African board, where luckily I served as a chair. I think I served as a chair of the FTA for about four years. And by representing as a chair of Fair Africa, I sat in the Fair Trade International Board. And I sat there, I think, three years. And for one year, I sat as a vice chair. And uh, very interestingly, the term of the chair who I was sitting under came to an end during the COVID time. And during the COVID time, he was very clear. He was not going to pull this move of boards. Let's extend until we have a, an idea. He said, no, my time ends in June. I must exit. So they asked me, would you mind holding until we have a, a, a chair? And I said, fine. So I actually stepped in and became the chair of Fair Trade International Arts. I, I must have been the first black chair, you know, first, uh, not first producer chair, but, you know, generally just the first female chair. First, no, not the first female chair, but also just the first black chair. And for me, that was so beautiful. It was, it was unaccepted. It was unexpected. But I'd been in the system for about six years, in the Fair Trade system about six years. So I understood it very well. I understood the governance aspect, which means my work was really as a chair to coordinate everyone and bring every, align everyone. It's during the period I was there that we launched our new strategy. So for me, also a very big learning point, uh, especially when it comes to lobbying your, your peers, lobbying your life, you know, to come together to a cause. And one of the things Fairtrade is known for is that conflict of, you know, the price, for example, the producer wants more, the trader wants to pay less, the consumer would rather pay even less. So getting a person who sits and says, look, what is sustainable? This is what I want. This is what I aspire. This is what you aspire. But the good, what is our vision? You know, and the chair's work is to keep us focused there. What do we stand for? It might not be what we like, but what do we stand for? If we stand for it, if we claim to defend it, then we must. We must do what needs to be done. We must perhaps give in here and there. We must. But we have to actually advance the cause that we have stayed we believe in. And for me, that's where really service comes into play. You know, when you sit in, in, in governance, it's nothing but service. You know, you lend your soul and heart to this mission you have committed to, and you support it, you grow it, you go out of your way to advocate for it. And I think for me to serve a fair trade, I believe that a lot of change we made. So one, I introduced, I lobbied and introduced the minimum wage in the flower industry, which was really just to try to say, look, although we are saying as producers, it's a bit expensive, it shouldn't be at the very cost of the last person in the chain. All right. Let's have fair pay, fair pay for, for the people. And I'm glad that that actually was implemented. And the, one of the standard measurements in fair trade in the flower industry is that one. So you want to ascribe to being a fair trade farmer, at the very minimum, you have to pay a particular amount. So that's, that is one. The second thing is, of course, the fact that we're able to bring a lot of, uh, you know, I, I didn't like the fact that there was a lot of donor-driven funding around very frivolous, you know, what I call white elephant projects uh, in the NGO world. And, and my focus was very clear, especially when I started the fair trade table, 
was the vision is to ensure that I, as a producer, continue being in business. We are a trade organization. My work keep me in business so I can take my child to Harvard. Don't come build me a nursery school, all right? Me, I want my child in Harvard. All you need to pay, your part is to give me enough money for my, my one hard work. I'll take my child to Harvard myself. You don't need to come and build me a nursery school. And I was very, very consistent. A trade organization remains a trade organization. Advocacy should be to ensure that trade is sustainable, not aid, not quickly turn it into an aid organization, frivolous gender conversation, frivolous educational conversations that really don't add much value. So for me, I felt there was a lot of, um, because I sat on that table, there was a lot of change in perception. Uh, I mean, I remember I, I was sitting in one of the meetings um, uh, when uh, there's a board, a cocoa board, I think, that sits in New York that was talking about child labor in Africa hmm? and how we are terrible. You know, there's a lot of terrible practice in Ghana. And I was very surprised because when I grew up, I grew, I used to visit my grandmother in Nyeri. And I used to carry coffee in my, on my back, in my little, little back then. Mm, very little back, I would carry at least two gallons of coffee or two, two, two tins of coffee to the coffee farm. But I was still sitting on the same table with this cocoa board person from New York, which means actually that carrying of that coffee did much more than spoil my back. It actually taught me ethic. It gave me the, the ability, the authenticity to sit on that table. So our definition of, of raising children as Africans cannot be utilized, therefore, to now become a source of funding, you know, in advocacy, all right? There must be that understanding of context. And when I spoke in the COP26, further, further down as I exited Fairtrade International, this was my bottom line message. We don't need aid. We know more about climate change but, than anyone else. My grandmother, when I was growing up, knew about that the, the weather has changed, all right? He, she knew that now rains don't come in April the way they used to come. Long before the white paper writers understood that there was climate change. So the context bearer is the person who owns the problem. And therefore, the solution must come from them. So when we're talking about, oh, okay, let us plant trees, in you know in whatever who is going to plant the trees who water the trees will they have watering water to water those trees so it's really not about let us come up with a white paper concept that's beautiful that sounds very nice let's sell it to the world and the person who really is affected the last mile person is not sitting on the table so i felt like uh, by sitting there for six years i amplified the voice of the person who was most affected I loved the results I saw when I went to the farms and saw beautiful, beautiful things happening, lives being changed, organizations functioning with their environment and also thriving, um, you know, the planet being protected. You know, I felt safe. You know, I felt I had put my part of safety. And when I finally then met uh, the Pope in, uh, in, uh, during the COVID period, you know, it's, it was the tip of the iceberg, seeing his simplicity, seeing his passion. And he, I remember the, the, the example he said is like a bee, a bee can change a whole forest. You know, it, it pollinates one bee, you know, pollinates everything. And it was, just, it was it, for me, it reminded me the why, you know, why we exist as leaders. Why it's important that we lead, we lead with our hearts, you know. These are the things that, it, that meeting reminded me. And, and 
you know, the, the, the hours on the long flights because I had to, to work at night, to work for Syrian during the day and fair trade at night, you know, as I traveled Europe, they were all worth it. You know, they were all worth it. And I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a pride I carry, um, having been in that organization. It's a pride I carry for long. They say you're a fair trader at heart forever. So I am a fair trader at heart. And I, I, I remain committed to that, to the ethos, to the vision uh, of equity. And I really hope that, you know, these this is organizations that are going to go quite, quite far because they, they really are the essence. It's not about aid. Just, just pay, pay for value because that's where, that's where the supply chain is struggling. The value is not being paid for. And because of that value not being paid for, another problem occurs. Then you now have people coming to solve that problem as if it existed from the beginning. And also just bringing the context bearers on the table. And for me, I think my leadership journey at Petrid really grew me completely, you know, from the, you know, from the manager to the leader. Because, uh, of course, at corporate, I was managing, but at Fairtrade, it was, it was bringing the hearts together. It was, you know, it was bringing the hearts, not even just the minds. The minds are there, but the hearts together. It was lobbying people who have no idea to come into your way of thought and to your way of, of, of life. So for me, it changed, it changed how when I sit, when I sit in a table and I see three, five opposing sides, I try to first understand the why. What is it? What is our common? What are, we know, try to bring people back again, but also to understand why George is thinking this way. What is it I need to do to influence? You know, how can I bring, how can I show them the light? What is it I need to solve for them, for them to work with me? And I think this was the most beautiful, you know, when I got out of five, five different meetings with five different uh, personalities, uh, especially the Germans and, you know, the rest of the people, and finally got us to some level of agreement, you know, and I realized everyone wants good. Everyone wants to be part of good. You just need to consistently remind them what is our shared value, what is our shared objective, and then you move them forward. So I think that's where I really, I can say my leadership was strengthened. Of course, at Osarian also, we, we, what, we led during the hardest times, but we had a great CEO. We had a great leadership at the board. We had great peer. I had great peers. Uh, and as always, I sit at their feet because I'm the youngest, you know, and it was, just, it was, it was a moment, a complete moment of growth. I think Neil Hellings, who was the CEO there, is one person I really owe a lot of gratitude, you know, because he just let me fly and like flying I did. <laughs> and he also just, he, the best was brought out during his tenure with me, you know, during, and, and, you know, of course, he always tells me you must pay forward. And, and that's my consistent conversation. How do I pay? How do I pay it forward? So, it's, it was it was exciting actually now that I now that you're making me reminisce and think about it it was it was it was very beautiful um, but of course in my thinking there's always time to move and so for me from the moment I entered it was about how do I ensure as, as I exit you know I will leave an indelible mark I will make sure that it continues without me because you know you also don't want to be in a situation where you're the chair forever you know. Uh, so I was consistently seeing, you know, and I introduced things like, let's train the board. They said, no, 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 but when you came to the board, you must know. I said, yeah, you could know, but this kind of board you have to be trained on. And we introduced board training. Uh, I introduced just exchange programs. You don't sit in the north only. Come to the south. Understand what you're legislating around. Uh, let the south go to the north. Understand who they're dealing with. So that, that way we are all working towards one mind. So my HR practice actually came in quite handy. 
um, because then that way I was able to make sure uh, that the people element is is brought and is is, is amplified. I also I was very instrumental in uh, the organization review that was done by Fair Trade Africa, which meant just fair practice. You know, let's let's be compliant, let's pay fair. You know, those are the, those are the undertones of my leadership during that period. So. Uh, and of course, I said it was tough. It was a tough cookie because you know there was unions, there was those uh, dollars. I mean, price fluctuation in in um, in our in our plant. There was also uh, pest and disease pressure during the same time. Uh, we were in, sitting in a depressed uh, uh, organization. So just ensuring you're keeping it afloat and bringing everyone with you. You know, the four thousand five hundred employees with you. So it was it was. You know, constant balancing, constant balancing. But one of my highlights, especially at at uh, Australian, is the people. You know, the people's heart was lent to the brand. You know, and they, you know, it was easy to consult with them. It was easy to, you know, to say, look, we are we are struggling here, guys. But I promise you, if we keep going this way, we're going to get there. And I think the the thing about leadership is that people have to trust you. People have have to trust. They can think, oh, you're you're a bit harsh, you're tough. But when they trust you and they trust that, you know, whether it rings or it shines, you're going to be the same. I think it works, you know. So for you, the burden really is on you to consistently prove that you can be trusted. You know, you've been given a stewardship, but you, know, you have to take it with such, you know, such uh, like heavily eh? so that you don't you don't breach it. You don't lose it. You don't. You know, you don't lose people because some people really put their hope on the leader. So you can imagine any 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 miscalculation, then you take away that hope. So I think that that really made me a tough cookie uh, because uh, <laughs> Syrian was was bare knuckles. Um, but I also made quite good friends there. I made very good relationships there. So yeah, and I got my two children there. So you know, it was really one of my toughest times and one of my most trying times. But also one of the most fulfilling. I feel like really I left my mark uh, in the world in general just by by having been there. And I'm I'm, I'm pleased they got that head that head had called uh, by the CEO that day. And I mean, initially I was like, where is that again? Yeah, but now I'm 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 always now I'm very pleased. Uh, and it leaves such beautiful memory. I mean, I keep telling the the, the directors who are there now that I owe you a lot. So please always don't hesitate to call me because I owe that brand quite a lot. As, as an individual. Wow, well said. <laughs> and thank you for even just expressing some of the things that you have learned, some of the things that have helped you in leadership. So if you just like to summarize for you, when you look at your leadership, what are some of the, the qualities that you've had that have worked for you in those leadership opportunities? I think different qualities emerge at different times when you're a leader. I cannot uh, remember when one changed into or when I utilized one. But I think as you're younger, it's around really proving that you're really a leader. You know, like you have to really kind of prove, you know, because the room is full of people who've gone before you, people who don't understand your school of thought. So at, at the beginning, the quality there is just being steadfast, you know, and being excellent. Yani, you, there's no there's no room for lackluster because at that point, really, everything you do is assessed. Uh, you, any little mistake could take you back. So there is really that tenacity, ability to just do and do well so that then you're almost indispensable because at that point, you're many, the pool is bigger, 
you know, you could be discounted for very little, 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 little things. So at that point, you Google yourself to death, all right? You make sure that you're, you're bringing your A-game consistently. And I think for me, really, that's the proper building block. If you're put under such kind of pressure, then it doesn't matter where you go after that. You've been through it. So really, you're, at that point, what you really want is that grit. You have to have that ability to stay or to stay. As you become the, you move to higher levels of leadership, there then you have many of you who have already proved yourself. So it's also now about interpersonal skills, making sure you're working with your peers. You're not like either shining your peers or unnecessarily edging them out, you know, uh, because then that way you bec- it becomes harder for you, you know, to move. Fine, you will move, right? But it becomes harder. So at that point, I think the quality there is more interpersonal skills, ability to bring others along. Now, when you go past there, by the way, it's about likability. You could have all the technical skills, you could have, but if we don't like you, it means we can't stand you. It means we can hang around with you. It means we can trust you with anything. So it doesn't matter how good you are. Therefore, there you, you have to really come back to your human. And I think for me, this is where my training and coaching turned around, turned me around, you know, because there's action, action, action at the end. But fine, action gets the work done, but you kind of leave a lot of bodies lying down. So if people can actually avoid you, because no one wants to die, people will avoid you, which means then you have to work almost 10 times harder than you should. But coaching really taught me to just pause. You know, I can still achieve everything I want, even at more record time, by just pausing, you know, and understanding and trying to just support. You know, it becomes more relational. So I think at, as I rose now and as I became a coach, the, that relationship, you know, the, the ability to see people as a human, as not as a root or a, not as a, a capital, but as, um, as a colleague, as a peer, as a thing that changes. But I might also say my motherhood changed me a lot, all right? Now, when you're trying to negotiate with a three-year-old or a two-year-old to swallow, okay? Now you're just sitting there saying, please, swallow, please, please, swallow, please. You try walk. You say, okay, let's walk. Oh, you, you sing lullaby songs to do. I'm telling you, it humbles you. You realize, Kumbe, you have zero control over anything. All right? Because this child, you can't kill, you can't beat. You can't say, no, no, then I won't feed you. No, no, no. You have to, you know, you have to try until that last, last, even the last spoon has gone in. I think for me, that's, that was the most humbling you know, and that side, I realize actually it's never that serious. The, the, the child still finishes, by the way. They'll take long, but they'll still finish. But they finish and you're very proud of that accomplishment. So why not talk to people who actually don't need to be told to swallow anything? Just have conversations with them, sell them the idea, pitch it, pitch it correctly. Pitch it with your heart because people want to know what's in it for me. You know, okay, you want me to do this, but what's in it for me? Everyone wants to know that. So you, all your work is to sell hope. Your work is to sell the product. Your work is just to sell the hats. Ensure that the hats are merging consistently to beat towards the common, common goal. And my premise is everyone is good until they prove themselves wrong. So we don't start with, you're very wrong. No, no, no. You, you must have good intent. There's no way you're waking up in the morning and coming here just to waste time. No, no, no. You, you had intent. You had the right intent. So I work with that right intent first until, of course, you prove yourself differently. So I think different qualities help you at different times. I think the, 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 the key is to know when, when to t- transition to the next quality or when to pick up a new quality. 
I think that's really where, that is what would differentiate with from Shaft. Because you could say this has worked anyway, so I'm going to keep moving. Uh, but maybe it doesn't work anymore. So I think that that ability to know when, when do I now change my way of work? Uh, when do I move into a different level of quality? That's really the differentiator. And it helps when you can laugh about it, you can talk to a coach about it, you can, you know, you can talk to another peer. I have I have very good friends. You know, I'll, I'll say something, they'll say, oh, even me, or they'll say something, I'll say, oh, yeah, that sounds like me. And, you know, they'll share an idea and then I'll pick it up. So I think that the, the, the challenge is in knowing when to, pick what other quality because if you had told me now today that i'd have this uh, ease, eh, ease easy way i would have been i wouldn't even have recognized that person you know because it was just do do and be strict and be firm and be you know now i don't see i don't see i think that would have been a strategy that would work now so i think that the plan is to know when to switch but the quality i think if you're authentic and if you your heart you're serving with your heart i think you will know you will know that this is this this is the place. This is where to do. This is what to do. You know who to talk to and how to get guidance. You will know what to hear and what not to hear. So I think that's what I'd, I'd say about the quality. Part one of this episode ends here. Join us in our next episode for part two. Thank you for joining us in today's podcast. We hope you're leaving with insights that will help you live and lead better. We appreciate our sponsors, BNG Consultants Limited and BNG Center for Leadership Coaching for keeping us on air. Bye for now. See you in our next episode.